Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. I'm a little nervous right now uh, because I think our legal rights are going to be trimmed by this. They are being trimmed by the Trump administration. They will be trimmed by the Supreme Court for sure. We may lose some legal rights, but we're never going back in the closet. Uh, so we're always we're always going to fight, and we're going to fight harder until we you know make this a free society for everybody. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Casper, an Outcasting youth participant. June 2019 marked the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. In 1969, the Stonewall Inn was a gay bar in New York City's Greenwich Village. In those days, police raids of gay bars were commonplace. Newspapers often printed names, and sometimes photos, of people arrested during these raids. Being publicly outed in this way as what we now think of as LGBTQ could lead to the loss of homes, jobs, and families. During one such raid on a hot night in late June 1969, patrons at the Stonewall Inn, eventually joined by many other people, rose up and fought against the police. This led to a series of riots over the next several nights. In the wake of the Stonewall Uprising, new activist groups were formed and took hold, and the Stonewall Uprising came to mark a major turning point in LGBTQ activism. Pride celebrations around the world commemorate the events that started at the Stonewall Inn in late June 1969. On this series, Outcaster Andrew talks with Andy Hum, a veteran gay journalist and activist based in New York City. Andy is the co-host of the weekly TV news program, Gay USA. Earlier in the series, Andrew and Andy talked about what life was like for LGBTQ people before the early activism of the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Politis. They talked about how activism became more militant in the years leading up to the Stonewall Uprising, the uprising itself, the rapid proliferation of activist groups almost immediately afterward, and the AIDS crisis. On this program, we pick up the story in the 1990s, as new drugs were being released that transformed HIV-AIDS from an almost universally fatal disease to a chronic but manageable condition. We continue through the fight for marriage equality, talk about Stonewall's role in the context of the LGBTQ rights movement, and consider just how much work still lies ahead for the movement. Outcaster Alex also comments on why it's important that everyone, not just LGBTQ people, have an awareness of Stonewall and the movement. This is the last part of a three-part series. The entire series is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Andy Hum, thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. So you mentioned earlier that in the mid-90s, HIV-AIDS kind of made the transition from a death sentence to a more chronic but manageable disease. It wasn't gradual. It was abrupt. They discovered protease inhibitors, and it went from night to day. If you were sick before those drugs were put on the market, you were, you were basically dead, unless you had a very slow-moving version of the virus, which some people did. But once those protease inhibitors hit in 95, 96... They called it the Lazarus Syndrome. You were about to die, and you started taking these drugs, and then you made the comeback. And people have been taking them ever since, to the point where, look, it's no fun having HIV. you got to take pills the rest of your life. But it is now a manageable disease. So around that time, same-sex marriage started to sort of percolate in a small number of states, and that resulted in the Defense of Marriage Act. So can you tell us about that? 
Sure. Marriage was not on the agenda for the mo most of the groups. We didn't think it was even going to be possible to get marriage, so we were fighting for things like domestic partnership benefits at companies and in cities. It took us until 1993 to get domestic partner benefits in New York City through a lawsuit for the city employees, and many companies did it, and some of them had been doing it for a long time. And the major groups, HRC, NGLTF, all these groups, they did not want to fight for marriage. Some of it was, well, we don't want to be part of something that's a heterosexual institution. That's what they said. And some of it was, nobody supports this. It's going to be too difficult to get. People are going to fight us so badly, we're going to be big losers. But you had gay couples who said, no, we want to be married. There was a famous couple in 1971 who went and got married in Minnesota. And eventually their marriage wasn't recognized at the Supreme Court in 1971. Actually, it was just recognized by the Social Security Administration saying, you've been married since 1971. And there was another couple that did that in Colorado where they were legally married because there was no barrier to people of the same sex getting married. There was nothing in the law that said people of the same sex couldn't get married. So they were married. Again, it wasn't recognized forever there, but it, they did do that. But the case that really brought things out in the open was in Hawaii. Some couples wanted to get married in Hawaii. And this was started by a, uh, a local lawyer who was suing for this. Eventually, Evan Wolfson, he was then working at Lambda Legal Defense, got involved with the case, and they won the case at the lower court level. They won it. And that triggered the Defense of Marriage Act which was passed by Congress in 1996 by a five to one margin. That's how much they hated us. I mean, I could name people today like Chuck Schumer, who's now the Democratic minority leader in the Senate, right? Uh, I, you know, all these people, Joe Biden, all these people voted for the Defense of Marriage Act. No, no, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, uh, they supported it. Bill Clinton signed it. No same-sex marriage. No, 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 no. It was a tremendous setback. And no legal gay marriages had even started in Hawaii because the case had been appealed to the Hawaii Supreme Court. So once they sort of passed the Defense of Marriage Act, they were allowed to ban it, and they did ban it. And then the right wing jumped on this and started passing constitutional amendments in as many states as they could, referenda, banning same-sex marriage. This was horrendous for people in like Mississippi and all these states where there was hardly any visible really gay movement in many of these states. This is being put on the ballot. Their dignity and their lives are being put on the ballot and we are losing these things big time. We didn't win any of them for the longest time. I mean, I could name a couple towards the end where we prevailed, but uh, it was awful. It was just awful. So tell us about what exactly Doma said. Well, it said two things. One, maybe Hawaii wants to, it didn't say Hawaii, but it said maybe a state wants to rec See, marriage in the United States up until that time was totally controlled by the states. They said who was married. States have different laws about who can get married among heterosexuals. In some states, you can marry your cousin. In some states, you can't, right? And there's different age limits for marriage around the country. So the states say who can get married. So what the federal government said was, you can go get married in Hawaii, and maybe they're going to give you some rights, but the federal government will not recognize it for federal purposes. So when you file your tax return, you're not married, even though if you're married in your state. The other thing that they said, and was very insidious, they said, 
So Hawaii can go ahead and do this if they want to, but the other states are not required to recognize those marriages if they don't want to. See, most in most areas of law, if a state recognizes you as married, when you move to another state, you're still married, right? Uh, but in this case, they said, if you, if you don't want to recognize it, you don't have to recognize it. And those were the two parts of the Defense of Marriage Act. And they were eventually struck down by two different court decisions. One, the Windsor decision, which said that the federal government did have to recognize it. I knew Edie Windsor very well, and nobody wanted to take her case. Her wife, she had gotten married in Canada. They lived in New York. Her wife died and she was going to have to pay a huge tax bill because they had a pretty good amount of money of about 360000 extra dollars on taxes because the federal government wasn't recognizing her as the widow of the Aspire. And she eventually won that case. And then Jim Obergefell brought this case up to say that my state has to recognize it too. Every state has to recognize it. And he eventually won that case so that... Um, all states had to recognize same-sex marriage. And again, those decisions were five to four. They could be taken away by this court. This court could say that was wrongly decided. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, ridiculed the marriage decisions in Obergefell and Windsor. He said, it might be a very nice thing to do, but it's not in the law, it's not in the Constitution. So watch out because those things can be changed. But even while DOMA was in effect, states started legalizing same-sex marriages. We did make some progress as time went on. I mean, well, first of all, some other countries did. The Netherlands was the first to legalize same-sex marriage. And then our neighbor to the north in Canada, they started to do it, first in the provinces and then for the whole country. And a lot of people in America would go up to Canada to get legally married. And here's the thing. I live in New York. New York did not recognize same-sex marriage, but New York did give, uh, allow, if you got married up in Canada or eventually in Connecticut or any of these other states that started to legalize it, when you came back to New York, you were recognized as married. That's what happened to Edie Windsor. She went to Canada, she came back to New York, she was married even though you couldn't get married down in New York. There was a judge in New York in 20, I guess it was 05, I guess, who ordered... Mayor Bloomberg to recognize same-sex marriages and start doing it, and he appealed that to the Court of Appeals in New York, and we lost. The Court of Appeals said New York City does not have to recognize those. If the mayor hadn't appealed that decision, there would have been thousands of legally married gay people in New York, people from coming all over the world. I hate him for it. Uh, but yes, states gradually started to uh, codify it and recognize it, and it had a sort of a snowball effect. And then once you had the Windsor decision, right, which said that the federal government had to recognize it, even Justice Scalia wrote in his dissent, you've given them a roadmap for legalizing it across the whole country. And yes, federal judges across the whole country said, yes, you do have to recognize it here, there, and everywhere. And it, it happened all very, very quickly. And I actually just read the other day that the evangelicals who are Trump's base, they were so shocked by the marriage decision because they had been so successful in banning same-sex marriage. That was their thing. And they did it in many, 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 many states, right? Yeah. And then the Supreme Court says, you, you, you know, uh, you can't do that. They, that really upset, that really mobilized them to want 
a monster, Donald Trump, who was an awful person, and they knew it, who would slay us, the women's rights activists, the gay rights activists, and, and, and he's doing it. He's taking away gay and transgender rights. He's, he says, they keep saying things like, well, yes, the same-sex marriage is settled law. Well, of course it's settled law. It's settled until it's unsettled, and the Supreme Court can change their mind on it, and he's put enough federal judges in who may start overturning it. So that's the backlash. They want people who are going to turn the clock back on gay rights and women's rights and rights for African-Americans. So to some, it might have seemed that after marriage equality was achieved, the main goal of the gay rights movement was finished. For example, the Empire State Pride agenda declared mission accomplished and closed up. Do you think it was right to do so? Absolutely not. There are always going to be issues. You know, they have a great organization in California that works on these things. They pass scores of bills affecting LGBT people every year in California. I'm so uh, uh, jealous of them, proud of them. Uh, we have a lot of work to do in New York and many, many things to do in many, many states. Of course, as you know, uh, some states, especially in the South, are passing laws that say it's totally legitimate to discriminate against gay people, especially if you have a religious reason. This is the big fight that we're in today. The Federal Equality Act doesn't allow for that. You can have a religious exemption to applying the law in the sense that the Catholic Church doesn't have to ordain openly gay people, for instance, right? But it doesn't affect that in terms of religion. But if every religious person is allowed to choose what civil rights law they're going to abide by or not abide by. We're in a lot of trouble in a society, and that's where the Trump administration and the religious right wants to take it. I don't mean to be so so depressing, but that's just <laughs> the way it is. I mean, having to do the Gay USA show every week for the last 34 years, every week, and talk about these things can be very painful. And people say they get depressed yeah. by what we talk about. But there, are, look, there are tremendous triumphs also. More and more people are open. Young people can come out in high school and have go to their proms and, you know, there are proliferation of images of us on television from uh, across the gender spectrum and the sexual orientation spectrum. So we have made a lot of progress culturally, uh, but politically, this is a very tough country because it's not much of a democracy. We're controlled by a few small states that get two senators and uh, the electoral college and elect, you know, monsters like Trump. So before we move on, is there anything else that you want to add about what fights remain for the LGBTQ community? Well, here's the deal. Until we get to the point where we can walk down the street hand in hand with our partners, any place in the country, any place in the world, we're not free, right? Until we can do everything that they're allowed to do normally, we're not free. And you know that that seems to be a long way off at, at this point, despite all the progress that we've made. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. June 2019 marked the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, a series of riots that marked a major turning point in LGBTQ activism. Our guest on this Outcasting series is the veteran gay journalist and activist Andy Hum. He's talking with Outcaster Andrew about how LGBTQ life and activism have evolved over the decades. So some states and municipalities have laws protecting LGBTQ rights, including New York, which just recently passed gender. What's the status of federal Well, New York didn't just, oh, you mean the state just recently passed gender. We passed it in the city yeah. a while ago, but not that, you know, it was back in 2003. Most people in the United States live somewhere where they're protected, but half the states don't protect us. 
I mean, even though many cities within those states protect us. And, you know, some states like Arkansas, where, the, where some cities have gay rights laws uh, and transgender rights laws, uh, they've passed statewide laws that say you can't protect gay rights unless the state does. And Tennessee has done the same thing. That's pretty heinous. Talk about local control. All these right-wingers say local control, local control, except when it comes to us. So that's why we need the Equality Act that was just reintroduced into the Congress, uh, which Donald Trump is never going to sign. But it's, it's going to pass the U.S. House of Representatives. And there are enough votes for it in the Senate, but I doubt that Mitch McConnell is going to allow a vote on it. But maybe they'll find a way. And then, you know, what will Trump do? Trump will probably veto it, and we'll have to wait for a new president. So there have been significant recent increases in transgender visibility, but overall, trans acceptance and rights are sort of lagging behind gay acceptance and rights. So tell us about where the trans community currently stands in terms of what's been accomplished and what's still to come. Well, it's it's a funny thing, because I've, I've known transgender people and what we used to, some people used to call themselves transsexuals back in the 70s. And in some ways, you know, they functioned as a society. They weren't, they weren't so visible. Because don't forget, when you transition, most people who transition want to be known as the new gender that they are. They don't want to be known as a transgender person. They want to be known as just a woman or a man, which they become. You understand? So there was a lot of problem with visibility. In the, and the, and it, that's part of the reason that the trans movement lagged behind. But now... Transgender people are becoming more assertive, more more visible as transgender, and they are fighting. And people are more aware of it. And of course, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to be too controversial, but I have said this before. We're all on a gender spectrum. We're all transgender in that sense. You know, the man to woman spectrum, right? There are very few people who are at the total end of the spectrum, totally butch or totally femme. I don't know what you want to call it. We're all in between somewhere, right? And Gay people have to realize that the reason that people discriminate against us is because we're crossing gender boundaries. A man going out with a man, that's not right for a man. A woman going out with a woman, that's, that's crossing a boundary. And that's why they go after us. That's why we've had a lot of success in recent years with suing for our rights in the absence of laws protecting sexual orientation and gender identity by citing sex discrimination under Title VII, Title IX, these federal laws that forbid sex discrimination. There have been cases going back 18 years where we've won these cases. And by the way, they're building to a head and they're sitting in front of the Supreme Court right now and they don't know what to do with them. They haven't decided what to do with them. I'm not optimistic what the Supreme Court will do, but that's how those laws have been used because it is all about sex discrimination. And that's why, you know, we're, we're a child of the feminist movement, of the women's movement. If people can't accept the equality of women, it's very tough for them to accept the equality of LGBT people. So let's put Stonewall into perspective 50 years later. What do you think has been its overall effect on the LGBTQ rights movements? Well, I, you know, I, 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 it's, it's because we have an annual march or parade in honor of it and, and all over the world, uh, I hope people are still remembering what Stonewall was about. I've gone to 40, literally straight, 45 pride marches in New York. I like to call them marches, not parades. I'm a little sick of it because it's become too corporate. 
and it's too regimented and all this kind of stuff. They want to limit the number of people on the street. Nah. So actually this year, I'm part of a committee called from something called Reclaim Pride, and we're trying to have a separate march from the corporate parade where we're just going to march from the Stonewall up 6th Avenue to Central Park like people did in 1970 and have a gay in and maybe a rally. That's what we want to do because that's what and because we want people to remember that there's still a lot to fight for. We have a lot to celebrate. We have, you know, but I mean just having go-go boys on a, you know, on a truck gyrating around, uh, that's something to celebrate, yes, but we can't forget how far we have to go, especially around the world. So that's why we're having a civil rights march this year. Uh, for Stonewall 50, in addition to the parade. So what do you see as the future of the LGBTQ rights movements? I'm a little nervous right now uh, because I think our legal rights are going to be trimmed by this. They are being trimmed by the Trump administration. They will be trimmed by the Supreme Court, for sure, the way it's set up, which is why I like what this openly gay candidate for president, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the South Bend mayor, he says, we need, we need to rebalance the court. It's, it's, we need to add members to it. And that can be done by the Congress and the president. And uh, it's been tried before. It, they used to change the number of Supreme Court justices in the 19th century all the time. Washington had six. They were all confirmed on the same day. And then it bounced around for a while until the, about the 1860s, and they kind of settled on nine. But this group of nine is not very representative of this country at this point. And we, we need a larger court and a, and, a, and a more balanced court, I think. And we've got to find, maybe find a better way to select justices so that they're judicious and they're not just playing politics. I know the other side thinks our side is playing politics with the courts, but we just need something that everybody can respect. So in terms of where we're going, we may lose some legal rights, but we're never going back in the closet. Uh, so we're always, we're always going to fight and we're going to fight harder until we, you know, make this a free society for everybody. And, uh, you know, I hope that my, my gay male brothers, you know, who are cisgendered, uh, will stand up for our transgender brothers and sisters, uh, because we need to be out there for them in their fight. Uh, I work on the board of a group called New Alternatives for Homeless LGBT Youth, and the majority of our young people are transgender, and that makes them that you know leads to homelessness for them because it's so hard for them to get employment and things like that, and their families throw them out and they have to leave their towns and things. So it's a hard time, and uh, we have to we have to all stick together around this stuff if we're going to make progress. So you said we're not going back into the closet, and that's true for those of us who are already out, but can lesser legal protections make it harder for LGBTQ youth to come out in the first place? Yep, <laughs> it sure can. The courts have been on our sides on many issues, not just marriage, but I mean, you know, if, if you want to start a gay club in your school, the federal courts will order them to do it if your local school district is saying no. If you want to go to the prom with your same-sex date, the federal federal courts will say, yes, that you have to do that. You can't discriminate on the basis of gender on that. So I don't know how much that's going to change, but uh, it's with the, with the media the way it is, with the internet the way it is, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know, so I don't think, it's not like I think we're going to end up all in camps. Although, if you live in Chechnya, you are, and they've been killing gay people over there uh, in camps. 
So, uh, you know, it, it, it is happening in various parts of the world. And there are places in the world where it's almost, it's virtually impossible to be an out person. And we, we need to change that. This has been a great conversation. Andy Hum, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Andy joined us from his home in New York City. He's a journalist and activist and co-host of the weekly TV news program, Gay USA. Next, outcaster Alex reflects on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. The 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots is an invitation to reflect upon half a century of the modern LGBTQ rights movement. 50 years. In some respects, it's an eternity, especially for a young person like me. But the history of the LGBTQ rights movement from both before and after Stonewall is rarely taught and not well understood by many people today. So it's important that everyone, not just LGBTQ people, try to put that 50 years in context. I'm 18. My lifetime doesn't stretch far back enough to truly recognize many of the advancements in LGBTQ rights that were sparked by Stonewall. I never faced the experience of having my sexual identity classified as a mental illness. I don't fear being harassed and brutalized by the police just for gathering with other LGBTQ people. I didn't live through the worst part of the AIDS epidemic. I grew up seeing same-sex couples living safely and happily in the communities around me. But I recognize that I live in a part of the country where being LGBTQ is generally pretty well accepted. There are many areas in the United States where it's much more difficult, where LGBTQ people continue to face these difficulties. And of course, LGBTQ people face even bigger challenges in other parts of the world. The accounts and stories of fear, violence, discrimination, and suffering that are an inevitable part of remembering the Stonewall riots are reminders that we can never be complacent. None of the modern rights we LGBTQ people have won came without sacrifice and hard work by activists who fought to improve public understanding of these issues and seek to get lawmakers and judges to help reduce discrimination. These accounts and stories also remind us of how fragile the bits of equality we've won actually are. In the blink of an eye, these advancements could be wiped out. The current administration has certainly taken steps to do that. And at the Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas recently cited the Obergefell case, one of the two Supreme Court cases that established marriage equality, as an example of something he thinks the court should undo. Fifty years is both an incredibly long time and a surprisingly short time. Fifty years is countless hours of activism, raising money, lobbying politicians, bringing lawsuits, and working to change people's attitudes. The LGBTQ rights movement is an ongoing process of educating and training new generations to continue to advance the movement for equality. 50 years is also a continuing history of thousands and thousands of LGBTQ people who are kicked out of their homes or lose their jobs for being gay, bi, or trans. And yet, for a social movement to substantially flip the nation's mindset in just 50 years is astonishing. I can speak to a lot of the change that has happened during the time that I've been aware of these issues, and there has been a lot of change. Beyond the legalization of same-sex marriage nationwide, it feels so different to be queer now compared to 10 years ago. More people are open to being educated, lessening the stigma of being LGBTQ. Considering the last 50 years of the LGBTQ rights movement brings two conflicting realities together. The progress made since Stonewall has changed the LGBTQ community for the better in countless ways. Yet discrimination hasn't stopped, and challenges against our growing equality continue. As I mentioned, People like Justice Thomas and many others in our country are actively trying to undermine and reverse our progress. 
the status of LGBTQ rights is evolving and progressing, and simultaneously going backwards. In little increments, year by year, month by month, we must continue our activism to make more progress, even as we fight the people who want to turn back the clock. There's lots of work to be done. LGBTQ people are still discriminated against in all 50 states, in big and small ways every day. This has been the final part of a three-part series. You can listen to the entire series on our website, outcastingmedia.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Andrew, Alex, Amelie, Dante, Lucas, Dhruv, and me, Casper. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386, or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Casper. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.